If you've listened to Don Henley's End of the Innocence, Carol King's Tapestry, Jackson Brown's Running on Empty, Billy Joel's River of Dreams, and most of James Taylor's recordings, then you're familiar with the musical influence of guitarist, composer, and producer Danny Korchmar, or Cooch, as most in the business know him. From his collaborations with Peter Asher of Peter and Gordon, to touring and playing sessions with Lee Sklar, Russ Kunkel, and Craig Dirge of the infamous Section, Danny has had a career that most would envy. As an accomplished singer-songwriter, he's worked with people like David Foster, Jay Graydon, Ringo Starr, Bruce Hornsby, Steve Jordan, Pino Palladino, and Tamio Okuda, while producing for others or for his own solo projects. He's also ready to embark on the 2010 Carol King-James Taylor Troubadour Tour, connecting him once again to tour with his longtime friends Lee Sklar and Russ Kunkel. Inside Music Cast welcomes Danny Korchmar. Hey, Danny, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, hey, Danny, where, where do we begin? That's the big question. Gee whiz, we can, me and Rick were talking a while ago, and we know that we can actually do two shows from, from this interview if we really wanted to, but I don't think that's going to happen. But um, instead of typically just going through chronological order, I, we just wanted to start off by first saying, you know, congratulations, first of all, for being part of uh, the upcoming James Taylor Carol King uh, World Tour. Well, yeah, what a thrill, and, you know, we're all ecstatic about it. We're all very, very happy about it. Yeah, it kicks off in Australia in March 27th, or is that uh, New Zealand? What? That sounds right. I think it's Australia. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you'll wind up back in Tanglewood in Massachusetts on July 4th. That should be a pretty interesting tour, huh? Yeah. Oh, it's going to be great. Yeah. You know, we're, we're all very, very old friends. We all love each other dearly and, and uh, had a lot of experience together. Yeah. You know, uh, I've played with Russ and Lee for 40 years as well. So sure. Absolutely. It's really a treat. It's just a treat. You yeah. Know? You know, this tour is actually going to be, uh, you know, a major tour at a time when, when major tours typically aren't happening as often as they used to, you know, right. unless you're like a U2 or a Beyonce. <laughs> I mean, you know, the, the venues, were, Eddie and I were surprised at the venues because these you're scheduled at some pretty huge venues, at least here right. in the States. I'm not sure what's happening in Australia, but which we really, you know, we're, we were kind of curious about that, you know, because uh, – you know the style of music with James Taylor and Carol King. It, it feels like I've seen them in smaller venues and like uh, you mm-hmm. know three thousand seat you know uh, indoor theaters. And right. mm-hmm. tell me, you know that kind of music being conveyed in a huge arena. Tell me your thoughts about that. Well, I just think you got to remember the songs are large. You know, I've been uh, yeah. for the last few weeks going over the set list and mm-hmm. uh, and relearning of some of this stuff. And these are big songs, yeah. all of them. Yeah. You know? And I think that's what you got to remember is the star of the show will be the songs. Right. You yeah. crank them puppies up and, uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, you get a real great band playing them. And James, you know, James at the top of his game as usual. Yeah. Yeah. Carol sounds great because we did three days at the Troubadour a couple of years ago doing this same kind of thing. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, it's just uh, it's such a big part of a lot of people's lives that uh, I think that is what's going to fill the arenas, you know. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. James and Carol's music is uh, as much of a vibe as it is uh, music. It's sort of a state of mind, you know. It's just like uh, you're you're right. It, it it penetrates. Yes. Well, it's engraved in the culture, into the culture, one way or the other. Yeah. And uh, an awful lot of people grew up with it, and not just people my age, but also uh, uh, people you know several generations back. So you know, I mean, forward. So it affected a lot of people. Absolutely. Uh, the music did. And it, has, it just resonates now just as much as it did then. Great songs are great songs. Yeah, right. And that's the name of the game. Yeah. Well, you know, like you, touching on a couple of things you just mentioned, they're calling it the, the Troubadour Reunion Tour. And, and after the gig celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Troubadour in West Hollywood in 2007, 
And of course, you know, a second ago you mentioned uh, three na- a couple of names, Russ Kunkel and Lee Sklar, both of which have been guests on our show. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, to me, that was, <laughs> well, to Eddie and me being, you know, sort of uh, liner notes geeks and, you know, following that music for such a long time, we were actually as excited about the fact that you three were going to be together right, <laughs> as exactly. it was going to be Carol King and James Taylor. Well, I'm so glad you feel that way because, you know, uh, Russ and Lee and I, you know, it's like falling, just playing with them cats is like falling off a log. It's so easy. <laughs> right. It's just so easy and so rewarding, you know? Yeah. Yeah. To play with them cats, it's just a beautiful thing, and you know I love them very much. Of course, I, I can just imagine the the vibe that you guys in, in rehearsals. Uh, have, by the way, have rehearsals already started, or when will that be? Or what? well, we're going to start uh, I think the first week of March. Yeah. Okay. That, that I was talking about that vibe. I mean, I remember you know when when I used to listen to the, to the record. I, all I I'm reading the names like Wadi and uh, um, you know Craig and you guys and uh, uh, who else? Uh, who was on steel guitar? Uh, Gee whiz, that was well, uh, Dan Dugmore. Danny Dugmore, right. exactly, yeah. and and I'm like, man, that that was all. It was all so connected, and you guys, it just the music just feels so. It just really flowing. But uh, anyway, you know, well, that's and, it. Yeah, that was that. That was the environment at yeah, the time. Yeah. Over your career, you've you work with a lot of a lot of people, man, and uh, and uh, I'm just going to name a couple of the significant album highlights that you've been able to contribute to, and and uh, me and Rick went over this list, uh, and for our listening audience, just to, if they're not familiar with your work, uh, this will definitely give them a, a very minuscule snapshot. The first one is Running on Empty, Jackson Brown. Um, what what a great album. Um, oh yeah. Yeah, Don Henley's, you know, you worked a lot with Don Henley in End of the Innocence and, and Building the Perfect Beast. And, of course, you know, we mentioned Carol King, right. Linda Ronstadt's Mad Love and Get Closer, David Sanborn's Hideaway, and, and even Billy Joel's River of Dreams. Right. The list goes on and on and on. But uh, You know, most successful musicians have a story about when they met someone who was instrumental in unlocking the door to a long, prosperous career. Mm-hmm. And out of all the people that you've met in your musical life, was there a person that helped you unlock the doors? Well, you know, listen. Uh, there's no one person that does that for you, but mm-hmm. you know, I went to a great college of musical knowledge, which is Carol King, who taught yeah. me how to play on record. <laughs> Carol taught me how, basically how to play the guitar on records, mm-hmm. yeah. and um, how to accompany a singer. And you know, I got, I got, and, and when I say that, I don't mean she sat down. You do it like this. She just knows. She just was a brilliant arranger, yeah. and uh, mm-hmm. just would say a few words to guide me in a direction. And I would, uh, uh, like I said, it was like going to college, mm-hmm. like going to Harvard. Because, like I said, she's a great arranger, very talented uh, uh, producer, and she just knows how to put the rhythm section together to create a pop record. Mm-hmm. And she had vastly more experience than me, so uh, I uh, listened. You know, I was I was very attentive and learned a tremendous amount right. about how to play from from her. So, how, how did you initially come in contact with Carol? What was your first experience with her? Well, uh, James and I had a band called The Flying Machine, and we were down there at the Night Out Cafe. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, you know, banging away. And, and there was a bunch of bands playing uh, in that club and in other clubs in the village. You can imagine that in the mid-60s, the village was jumping. Right. <laughs> and a lot of great bands, a lot of great musicians, all of them just trolling the streets and playing in all the different clubs. And it was quite a scene. One of the bands was a band called The Middle Class, and they were very well-known at the time. Mm-hmm. They had played a bunch of the different clubs in New York, and uh, we'd been hearing about them. They came down to play, and they were really, really good. <laughs> really good. So uh, I became friends with them, and especially uh, Charlie Larkey, who was the bass player in that band. Mm-hmm. And uh, the guitar player was a fellow named Ricky Filth, brilliant, brilliant musician. Uh, Dave Palmer went on to work with Steely Dan. I mean, these cats were yeah. they were real good. Yeah. And uh, 
Charlie happened to know and be close with Carol King. Carol and uh, and Jerry Goffin were working on uh, the middle class. They wanted to be part of the kind of uh, the band, the new you know British invasion band kind of way of mm-hmm, thinking. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So um, Carol n- knew these guys, and they knew Carolyn. And, and uh, after hearing us, after hanging out with us a little bit, I guess Charlie said, "Well, you know, let me bring Carol down. She'd like you guys." And uh, Carol, there she was, down at the night owl to check out one of our sets. And believe me, I knew who she was. (laughs) (laughs) Goffin and King were legendary to me. Absolutely. As were all the great songwriters of that day. I knew all about them and had followed their careers, all of them. Yeah. You know, and uh, really idolized them. So for Carol, was like a giant already. I couldn't believe I was meeting her. Wow. And um, from playing on her demo, she invited me to play. They were always doing uh, publishing demos. Yeah. And uh, they were always writing songs, and they were always doing publishing demos, and I would be called to play on some of those publishing demos, and mm-hmm. that's how I learned to play the guitar on records. Is that the time that, uh, was she connected with Lou Adler at that time? This was before uh, she hooked up with Lou and owed records, that's when we all went to L.A. Okay, gotcha. But she knew Lou, you know, of course, he was one of the, he'd been a, a, a huge presence right, yeah. in, in, in pop music for years, yeah. you know, before then, before yeah. You know, years before I ever got it, when I was still in, in, in junior high school. So uh, anyway, these people loomed large to me, and that's how I, I learned was from from, uh, from Carol and from and from Lou Adler. And I should mention another really important name, which is Peter Asher. Yeah, right. And uh, Peter Asher was a guy with just great taste, and I became close with him because my other band, <laughs> the band before the uh, Flying Machine, was a band called the King Bees, and mm-hmm. uh, that band. Somehow or other, we got the job backing up Peter and Gordon yeah. on that well, a leg of their American tour, one of their American tours. Of course, and we Pete, them, Peter of course, Peter Asher being the Peter of Peter and Gordon. Right, yeah. yeah. Anyway, so these are the people that were influential into, uh, on, on me, certainly. Yeah. You um, started a band called The Fugs, and I've heard some of the tracks and just... Oh, no, wait, uh, I never started The Fugs. Oh, no, 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 no. No, no you, were a ba- you, were, you played wi- in the band. I was strictly a Fugs sideman. <laughs> really? Oh, yeah, I didn't start The Fugs. <laughs> you know, The Fugs was Ed Sanders and Ken Weaver and Thule Kupferberg, and they were, they were poets from the East Side. They were poets and political activists. <laughs> Holy cow. And they, they, had, they had The Fugs going uh, at least a couple of years before I uh, joined up with them as a Fugette. That's interesting because you're saying that political activists, I mean, obviously they had an opinion they wanted to say something there because obviously songs like Kill for Peace, Dirty Old Man, and I could go on. <laughs> Let's just say that they're sort of underground and they had a... Oh, they're uh, definitely, some, they were way underground. <laughs> pretty hilarious stuff, man. It's, it's very uh, um, uh, it's very entertaining music, you know? It's hilarious. They were hilarious. <laughs> you know what? Uh, hilarious. It's funny because, uh, you know, as I was digging into the, the, the fugs a little bit, I noticed three guys that actually... At least contributed to the to the, that the body of work, and that was Bernard Purdy, Chuck Rainey, and Eric Gale. Well, you know, those three mean, guys played yeah. on played for everybody at one time or another. Sure, they were I, the grand I can believe of, that. Yeah, of, uh, the New York section scene. They were the mm-hmm. absolute the high as you could get guys, and and. Uh, so at some point they played even played on a Fugs record. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you're right. They did own New York at that time. Oh sure. You know, and then uh, and them then, and a few other cats. They actually ruled the roost in yeah. New York as as the session scene. Exactly. Yeah. You moved over to L.A. and then uh, things really started expanding for you. You know, especially with Carol, right? Well, yeah, it was a fortunate thing because Peter Asher moved there as well. And Carol uh-huh. was there. Uh, a bunch of us moved out there, and, and, and that was an instant community kind of, and that was great. You know, uh, Los Angeles is a hard place to meet people. So the fact that I, 
even had these friends was, a, was an amazing thing. You know, even these three or four people that I knew. Mm-hmm. So it was great. And then um, Carol con- started continuing with her career. You know, you, you know that whole story. Exactly. Right. Yeah, and uh, how Lou Adler was part of the of the whole scene there. Of course, he discovered uh, just for our listening audience. You know, he was um, pretty much responsible for the Mamas and the Papas and working guys like you know Redding and Joplin. I mean, he was a monster at that time, wasn't he? He was a very very important guy in music. Yeah. No question about very one of the most important guys in music at that time. Yeah. And he had impeccable taste. That's the thing I remember most about Lou. He always had great taste in everything. I, I know him about when his, you know, the, all the information about his grandeur and his heyday there as a, um, but he had to have that type of uh, ex- really uh, exquisite taste to find people and to find talent, you know, wouldn't exactly. he? Exactly. Do you know anything about how he hooked up with uh, Carol? How he sort of, I guess he's credited with uh, the, the beginning of her work, you know? Well, all these people knew each other, you know. They, yeah. uh, everyone in the music business knew everyone else. It was a pretty small business at that time. Got right. Remember. So Lou had worked in New York as well as L.A. He was from L.A. and, and uh, was an important part of the scene there Yeah, uh, with Sam Cooke and then, uh, you know, Janet Dean and a bunch of surf records. I mean, you, you know you know the story. Everyone yeah. knows the story of Lou Adler. It's legendary. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, fortunately, I, he was the producer on on an album called The City, which was Carol, myself, and Charlie Larkey. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And um, Carol really didn't feel like being um, a solo artist at that time. So she wanted to do, release her first record in the guise of a band. Yeah. So it was the three of us. I dig this. The drummer was Jim Gordon, one of the greatest drummers in yeah, L.A. right. And Lou was the producer. I can't remember the name of the engineer. Lee, I can't remember his, hmm. his name. I wish I could, because the engineer was also phenomenal. The studio was great. I mean, and here I am. This is my first album that I've ever made. Uh-huh. First uh-huh. album all of that I played on all the way through. And I'm, I'm working with, like, the absolute best people you could possibly imagine. So, Do you recall the studio? Uh, the corner of Yucca and uh, <laughs> and uh, I think Coenga. <laughs> Sorry, that probably was that wasn't even a fair question. <laughs> I know where I, 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 I could drive you to it right now. <laughs> I'm sure it, you know, could. I, I don't remember the name of it, right. but you can find out easily enough that album was re-released. Anyway, uh, uh, the sound of it and it still sounds great, by the way. Mm-hmm. And uh, these are all like the best, best, best people. So I really absorbed it all like a sponge and, and learned tremendous I learned so much from just that one album yeah. mm-hmm. so being it, it being your first album uh, I'm sort of going back to what you said a little while ago about you know Carol uh, sort of like uh, showing you the nuances or talking you through as to what she's feeling I, I, I take it this first album was a major education for you Section. Talk to us about that, man. Uh, you, uh, Russ, Lee, and and Craig. Mm-hmm. Um, you guys first toured with with James on his first national tour. What was that like? Right. It was well. The four of us were, were touring with James on, yeah. on um, a couple of his tours, and and uh, you know it was. Listen, it was great. It was a lot. You know, it was terrific to be on a big a big time tour like that. Yeah, just, just great. You know, it was. Um, uh, we started playing too. We started jamming all the time, right? Uh, you know, in um, 
James would do a sound check. We would go to the, the hall and do sound checks. And when James was through getting his sound, uh, we would play. The four of us would just play and play and play until they kick us off the stage. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so we started talking about uh, wouldn't it be cool to uh, have a band that just played instrumentals and... and uh, um, so at that point, that's you know that's we we started heading in that direction. And James came up with the name, the section. So uh, mm-hmm. uh, when we got back, we were lucky enough at that time, you know, that we could get a deal. I think with Warner Brothers and yeah. and, uh, and make a couple of records, and, and we toured. We toured with the Mahavishnu Orchestra. So you can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> Believe me, I'd rather open for them than close. Exactly. <laughs> after them, you know, it have to be like Godzilla going after that band. They were unbelievable. And now here's a section <laughs> for your listening pleasure. That's interesting. Well, thank God we were going before them, and, and um, you know, <laughs> I was uh, shaking in my shoes. They were all wonderful people, of course. Yeah. So when you toured with James on, on the first tour, were you doing vocals with him, or or was he doing the only vocal at the time? He was doing. He was the only one singing. Really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, you know, I wish I'd worked more on my singing so that I could have like sung harmonies with him. But he yeah. Was, the thing is, James is so in tune. He's so blazingly in tune, and always, <laughs> always. was. <laughs> always. <laughs> I mean, he's really in tune. Yeah, he's he's a, a good friend of mine who was a musician in L.A. That He used to refer to him as the Disney World of vocalists because you always get a good experience every time you see him perform live. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it has a, a certain warmth and, and uh, character about his music that's just, yeah. just, in, just engages us. Yeah. Indescribable. You know, the, we were talking about the section, and you know, they recorded uh, three records. One was called the section, another called F- Forward Motion. That was on Warner Brothers, and then Fork It Over was on Capital, and right. that was four years later in '77. And I'm just, this is just a curious question, but why the change of labels? Oh man, I don't remember. They probably kicked us off Warner Brothers. You know? <laughs> <laughs> we weren't any records, you know, uh, yeah. and um, they kicked us off. I don't, and somebody got us a deal at at, at Capital. Yeah. Well, I don't, you know, I barely remember. But just the fact that I'm so blasé about it shows you how that it was pretty easy to get a deal back then. You yeah. Know? Even for something as obscure as, as uh, uh, a bunch of uh, studio guys playing instrumentals, you know. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, That's an interesting point. Yeah. Yeah, and but, so uh, we were able to put this record together and said, you know, I'll get the really good, a really, a really good engineer, a really good uh, uh, studio, you know, and uh, the whole, the whole scene. That would be impossible now. You know, the last album, Fork It Over, um, yeah. it was recorded four years after the, the previous album. Was my, my This is probably my logic that's just put, trying to put this together. Did it take you that long to record that album because you were so busy touring and other stuff? Yeah, everybody was busy doing whatever they were doing. Mm-hmm. And we had lost a deal, and then, with, you know, basically all of us went our separate ways. To, right. You know, we all had to work. I mean, sure. if we were offered gigs touring, that's what we did. Yeah. Right. Let me see. I was also in another band at the same time. Okay. At that uh, in that period, mm-hmm. uh, and that band was called the Attitudes. Okay, the Attitudes, the Attitudes was uh, Jim Keltner and uh, Paul Stallworth and David Foster and myself. Okay, mm-hmm. and uh, we made two albums that were released on Dark Horse Records, mm-hmm. George Harrison's label. Right. If you keep in mind, Jim Keltner, the great Jim Keltner, and also a seminal figure in my life, very important guy to me. Right, right. In my development, in my uh, ability to develop as a musician. Very important, mm-hmm. and not just to me, but to a lot of people. Um, anyway, uh, I was lucky enough to play with Jimmy in this band, and Foster, who's you know, sure. not to say anything about David Foster, he's, he's amazing. But people don't realize what a great uh, piano player he is. Oh he's yeah, a phenomenal keyboard player. Oh yeah, over the top jammer, mm-hmm. you know, and just he's 
grooves like a mad dog. And we had a lot of fun um, uh, doing that music. We had a lot of fun doing it. You, you put out two records, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Attitudes and Good News? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we were able to put out two records again. There was no problem getting a record deal. But that was largely because Jimmy was very good friends with Georgie. So uh, mm-hmm. it was his label, and, and um, he was, you know, forthcoming. And, and he, was, he paid for studio time, and away we went. You know? All right. And you guys brought in some... Uh, like you mentioned to some of the players, but you guys also had some other contributors to the album, such as right. Jay Graydon and Ringo Starr and Waddy yeah. Wachtel and even the Tower of Power horn sections. That's monster mm-hmm. stuff. Cool. Sure, why not? <laughs> yeah, why not? <laughs> Who else is around? <laughs> Who wants to play? Come on. <laughs> yeah. Well, the whole thing was very jammy. That's how that, that's how that band started. Was it was based on just a bunch of cats jamming uh, on Sunday night over at the old record plant on 3rd Avenue. Uh-huh. Right. And, um, and, um, it was a, a stellar selection. You know, Ringo was there, and, and uh, John Lennon was there, and, you know, just everybody you could ever imagine. You wrote around half of the songs in that project, those projects. Yeah, I do write. Some of the songs were mine, and then some were just jams that we made up, and some was written by uh, Paul Stallworth, the uh, uh, bassist and, and uh-huh. vocalist on, in the band. Fantastic musician also. Yeah. Fantastic. And... Uh, we just had a ball with that. You know, I had a great time doing it, putting it together. Mm-hmm. The first album was a lot of jamming and then editing. Right. The second album was more uh, song, finished songs. Right. You know. I want to jump back real quick to the section. I had one more question for you sure. about the after you guys put out your third album. Um, did you did you ever get back together again? You know, like maybe you know several years down the road or anything in tour? Because I, I thought I recalled that you, there might have been like a small reunion of some sort. Yeah. You mean after the Capitol record? Yeah. Probably, sure. Okay, I was just—I didn't know if you had uh, regrouped. Yeah, um, we did. Okay. I'm, I'm sure we did play some more after that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I was just curious about that. I'm vague about <laughs> where... Oh, no, I'm not. Okay. We opened, and that's coming back to me now. We, um, we opened for two tours that, that, that uh, one summer. The summer we did Running on Empty, right. James went out, and we opened for James as okay. the section. Then uh, we opened for um, Jackson. Jackson had us opening the show uh, on the Running on Empty Tour. We played for a half an hour. Wow. Okay. So that's what, you know, we did two tours back-to-back. So, of course, we you know, we absolutely did tour. Yeah. Cool. Interesting. Yeah. Have you always been a writer-performer? When when did you actually start writing? What? Uh... Oh, I started writing when I was, you know, 13 or 14. So you you, you always wrote uh, original stuff in all the bands that you were in. That's right. Yeah. Interesting. Which that brings me to a question about... Uh, uh, an album you put out, your first solo album, uh, called Cooch, right? Yeah. A lot, it, I, Eddie and I were listening to that album. There's, mm-hmm. there's, you know, we were we were interested in that because it was a lot of variety, you know, like uh, for sentimental reasons, Burnt Child, You're So Beautiful. Right. A lot of varying styles on that album. Well, I think it's basically one style, which is, uh, it's based on, you know, R&B and soul music. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you know, it's a, obviously, uh, a, uh, you know, nowhere on the level of the real geniuses of that style, but that's where I'm coming from. Mm-hmm. And uh, with that, those were always my big influences. I was really heavily into R and B and soul music. By what what I call R and B would be uh, Stax Volt, Motown, right, mm-hmm. and uh, you know Atlantic Records, all all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, as well as you know the more obscure indie, and there was tons of that too. There's tons of that music Absolutely. that came out in the '60s and early '70s before disco killed it. <laughs> and um, uh, that was my huge I was heavily influenced by the way guitars were used on that stuff
Talk about your playing a little bit. Uh, um, did you study music, or did you were you immersed into the experience of playing as uh, as as you grew up as a performer? Um, well, I, I was taking guitar lessons from a very young age, but mm-hmm. I wasn't really interested in it for the yeah. first couple of years. I, you know, my mother was forcing me to do it, <laughs> <laughs> and then me. I learned the three chords to uh, uh, Louis Louis. You know, <laughs> okay. the one, the four, the five, and sure. the one, and with those chords, you could play about 50 rock and roll songs. <laughs> and, I, and the heavens opened at that point. Just the heavens parted because I always liked rock and roll, but I didn't know where I fit in. I didn't. And when, when I got those three chords going, that was it. My brain did a, you know, a backflip and, and uh, you know, I got the rolling arthritis. And, you know, the rock and pneumonia right then, you know. So what was your first guitar that you got on your hands? Like probably a K. Um, yeah, yeah. And then a, 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 a cheap, Cheap Gretsch, yeah. uh, um, anniversary. Actually, it wasn't that cheap. It was one of them was pretty nice. It was a Gretsch anniversary one pickup, lime green. I wish I still had it. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know, you just mentioned uh, the Kingsman and Louis Louis, and you know, what else were you listening to as a kid growing up on you know on the radio? I mean, what what songs and artists were really impacting you at that time? Well, you have to remember that the, the period I was growing up with it was a. Uh, an incredible period if you were interested in music. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just, I mean, all hell was breaking loose. Yeah. You had the best of rhythm and blues in terms of Motown and uh, Stax Volt, like I mentioned. You think about Motown. Mm-hmm. Motown records, every record was good. Right. Every <laughs> song was good. <laughs> You're right. You can't say that about any band now. That's, <laughs> that's, that's true. true, man. You know, think right about, about it. Right every about record they put out was great. You could even say that. And, you know, I mean, it, you know, it's so it's, it's a different world. Okay, let's go to Atlantic Records. Every record they put out was great. Right, Big yeah. Joe Turner, The Drifters, all those R&B records, they were all fantastic. Yeah, yeah. And then Stax Volt, all of it was good. All of it, man. You know, not just a few tunes here and there. Sure. The entire thing was great. Everything <laughs> Otis Redding did was great. All yeah. of it. Yeah. Uh, and that record was a huge influence. Otis Redding records were a huge influence on me. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so that stuff was great. At the same time, jazz was exploding sure. with labels like Prestige and Blue Note, Atlantic, sure. Impulse. On those records, practically every one of those records was great. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Coltrane and Miles and Cannibal Adderley, man, Riverside Records, those right. badass exactly. records. Exactly, sure. I love that. Okay, then there was folk music. All hell was breaking loose with <laughs> folk music, and a lot yeah. of people were doing different things uh, uh, pre-Dylan and, and with Dylan, you yeah. know. It was a really exciting time for folk music, and if you, you know, study the area, there was tons of great, uh, uh, you know, a lot of great folk music happening in New York, especially. Sure. And on records. You know, guys like Josh White, and Big Bill Brunzi, and then exactly. Dave Van Ronk, yeah. Carolyn Hester, and Joan Baez, I mean, and they were, they were really good, and yeah. that music also affected me. Well, not only was all that music 
amazing, like you just mentioned, and everything was good. But it was also, you know, at the same time, it was really impactful. You know, I mean... That's right. It was also important in society. It was playing, uh, unlike now, it was heavily connected with what was going on in society. Right. You know, and um, I don't hear that at all anymore. Um, people were saying something back then. People were either they were angry or they were happy or they were talking about love, but they had something to say. Well, yeah. it was very much connected with the times. And yeah. remember, there was a very, that was a very turbulent period of time, and the sure. music was really connected with it, either to calm you down and give you hope or to rile you up and, and uh, fire you. But I, and I'm saying they were political. I mean, uh, uh, it was, was Creedence Clearwater political? <laughs> oh, I guess you could say they were, but the, to me that was rock and roll. I mean, right, right. they kicked so much ass, who cares what, the, you know, what they were talking about? Mm-hmm. You just wanted to hear it over and over and over again. <laughs> and so uh, I was lucky enough to grow up in a period where like, there was just convergence of all this stuff coming together, and that's what created the Beatles. And when the Beatles came out as a guitar band, because remember, before that, guitar was really kind of, you know, yeah, back, right. you know, um, you know, way back kind of instrument. People, you know, guitar, jazz guitar players would almost apologize for being amplified. They, yeah. they, you know, and all the songs were in E flat, A flat, B flat, which aren't guitar keys. You know? Yeah, right, right. And, and like you so, said, then shortly after that, you could see the amps right in front and next to the. Yeah, yeah it moved when, forward. You're right. Well, when the Beatles came out, I could see how a guitar player could play rhythm and blues because the Beatles originally played rhythm and blues. Mm-hmm. If you listen to their early records, they're oh, always sure. doing covers of R&B songs. Right. Half their repertoire was covers of rhythm and blues songs. That's what they were doing. And when I heard that, I said, okay, that's, now I see mm-hmm. where I fit in and how I can do it. And when I heard the birds, I recognized what you could do with folk music and how you could apply a beat to that and get going and have some fun with it as well. Absolutely. Like I said, a convergence of all these different things. So I was tremendously influenced by all that stuff going on. Being a guitar player, I was... You know, playing the perfect instrument to be part of this uh, all-hell-breaking music. Sure, right. You know, take take that notion of what you just mentioned about, you know, it being impactful and having a message and fast-forward to today. And, and you know, music, it, I, I mean, obviously, you're, you're still involved in, in, in what's happening in music. And, and it, you know, obviously, we're not just listening on the radio anymore. We're listening to a myriad of different, you know, ways that influence us musically. And is, you know, but do you think music... <laughs> Do you think music is as impactful, or is it just sort of a, a side note on our lives now? I think it's a side note. It's, it's, uh, it's one of the things that influences people, but it's not the only thing, and it's not the main thing, uh, uh, as it was back then. Music, right. That's how you got your news. That's how you, got, that's how you knew what was happening, right. was, uh, you know, and how you connect with people. Mm-hmm. And it's not as important as, uh, uh, now as it was then. And how could it be? You know, things change. Times change, right. and people change, and... You know, nothing can last forever in terms of, uh, you know, these, these uh, moments in time, you know. Right. Are there, uh, any, are, you know speak, are there any artists out there in, right now that, that you feel are writing great songs and doing, uh, writing as impactful songs as, as what was happening back, you know, when you were growing up? Oh, there's always cats writing, you know, good stuff, you know. Uh, there, you know, there's always guys doing, doing uh, right. great stuff. I guess the song that's the most prescient is, is that... Uh, James McMurtry song, We Can't Make It Here Anymore. Yeah. Which is, you know, one of the greatest songs I ever heard in my life, you know. It's, yeah. It just nails it. But that's extremely social and political. Um, you know, it's, I, I don't know. It doesn't mean to, it doesn't mean to me what it means to young people. Mm-hmm. You know, I hear uh, mm-hmm. uh, Coldplay, their songs just have a wonderful longing and sense of, you know, they're just beautiful. You yeah. Know, and I, I love them. 
I think the Killers had a couple of songs. Their first song, uh, Mr. Brightside, I thought was absolutely yeah, brilliant. Yeah, very good song. Yeah. Several of their songs are just great. But also, a lot of their songs don't mean are about nothing. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and I was really, when they put out Are We You in an Are We Dancer, I said, oh, man, you know, I don't care. What are you talking about? You know? Look what's going on in our country. Who gives a shit whether we're human or dancer? We're kind of, you know, come on. <laughs> but, you know, that's me. You know, they have a right to say whatever they want, of course. I know. Well, you know, the, the thing I was thinking about, though, is, you know, uh, if if there was a great song 30, 40 years ago, it, it, it hit the radio and everybody heard it. But now... But now a lot of that stuff's, you know, a lot of what we might consider an excellently written song, something well produced, something with a great message, it may not even find its way. It, you right. know, it, and it's, right. it just sits there, and a lot of people don't even get to hear it. Yeah. Right. And yeah, because there is no, um, well, there's no filter. There's there's no top forty anything. There's no, um, uh, you know, kind of one. Thing. If you if you know, obviously in the old days you'd have a hit song. Everyone would have heard it. You hear it a million times, whether you hated it or loved it. Right. Now uh, a song can be a huge hit, and nobody hears it. You know? Exactly. Right. Absolutely. I mean, uh, I've never heard half the songs that are like that are, uh, you know, number one. You know. Right. And, uh, you know yeah. what I enjoy doing sometimes? I, you know, just just going to MySpace or whatever and, and lit- literally looking for music that I've never heard before. And, and you know what? You, you actually end up discovering an awful lot of artists that are that never have had the opportunity, the break to really come out. And these guys are writing beautiful, honest songs. I mean, they're not they're probably not, you know, these huge hits, that type of thing. But there's some good music there that's sort of like under a, a big... Uh, uh, under a big covering that you almost have to go in there now and if you want new music you have to really dig to find it these days you know right I think that's true yeah uh, um, uh, I think that uh, you would have to really really cruise um, yeah the various sites and uh, you know for, basically it's tough though I mean I go on Pitchfork and I find it and if I hear they're raving about something I'll check it out yeah. um, but it's you know it's tough yeah, exactly. Uh, the groups I the groups I like, like uh, I love the Black Keys. And well, everybody loves the Black Keys. Sure. How could you not? Because uh, that guy can really sing. You know, mm-hmm. I like hearing that. <laughs> I hear, hear like hearing a real badass band. But um, you know, they're never going to you know play Madison Square Garden and be the biggest. Yeah, band. right. <laughs> uh, they're a niche band, just like uh, the White Stripes are a niche band. You yeah, know, right. there's only two of them. I mean, again, you know, Jack White may be famous, but. Where's it going to go with that? You exactly. Know? Colleges, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. None of these things are designed to, you know, for the big bamboo. You know, the last band to do that, I guess, was, well, there's U2, but also Coldplay. They do big sure. shows. Right. Um, you know, there's, listen, there's a lot of great, there will always be great music. There will right. always be, you know, people doing great music, and there yeah. always was. Yeah, you know? sure. Uh, that's not going to change. Right. How it gets delivered is going to change. Oh, exactly. You're yeah. right. You know, when I think of, of guitarists such as yourself, um, legacy guitarists, um, um, I, I back away a little bit and I, and I sort of look at the function of gu- gu- guitarists and you get some, uh, follow me here in, on this thought, the, you know, the, the first type of guitarists that, of, uh, that we're all very familiar with are the rhythm guitarists that basically are, you know, add the background and they're back there and, the, and they work the song and keep it stabilized. But also there's the type of guitarist that can take it or has the ability of, of taking it to another level. The soloist, the solo guitar player, and you're one of those guys that can breathe that vibe into that track and literally make it or break it in a matter of 20, 10 or 20 seconds with, with a solo. Um, not every guitarist can play solos, can they? Well, you know, uh, I think the, uh, the most important thing about music, whatever instrument it is, mm-hmm. uh, is that um, 
it, uh, it's, it's collaborative effort. You know? mm-hmm. Well, let me give you an example of what I mean. In, in 80 and 82, you, were, you, uh, you worked a couple albums for, uh, for Linda Ronstadt. And uh, on the second album, Get Closer, you played a solo for a track called Easy For You To Say. And, yeah. you know, that when I listen to that solo, uh, I, you, I, I'm sure you remember it well, it, uh, it still leaves me pretty stunned. I mean, that, that solo made that track. And it wasn't really dynamic, but, man, it balanced everything out. And it well, just, the thing is, what I'm doing is I'm playing for Linda Ronstadt. It's, it's Linda Ronstadt's record. I'm, what I'm doing, I'm there yeah. to help the whole thing. You know, a guitar, if you want to get paid to play the guitar, you've got to make the singer sound great, the drummer sound great, the rest of the band, you've got to make the producer sound happy. Yeah. It's all got, you know, you've got to help. Mm-hmm. If, if all you can do is play solos in right. your closet or you're, you sit in your bedroom <laughs> and play, you know, then you're useless. You're yeah. useless to anybody. Exactly. <laughs> you've got to think about that. To play the guitar, you know, what, what, what's a good guitar player? Well, sure. I don't know, you know, a good guitar player is a lot of different things, but right. a working guitar player, a guy that's going to make records, a guy that's going to be on records and tours, is somebody that makes his fellow musicians sound good right and that they'll like playing with him because he, he makes sound. that doesn't mean he gets in front and solos all the time it sure. means he can he knows how to be a supportive musician yeah. all musicians have to be supportive that's what a good musician is absolutely right now you're talking about lead guitar what there's five guys so maybe there's ten guys no five you know yeah. you really want to hear play solos i mean actually there's, <laughs> there's more than that but there's only about seven or eight or ten guys playing solos that are making a living doing it yeah. You know exactly, and uh, you know my buddy Steve Luca there played the greatest solos you ever heard in your life. You right. know, uh, uh, all night long. John McLaughlin is just unbelievable. I mean, I you know he still astonishes me. And then there's cats. I'm gonna start naming my cats that I dig. It was Bill Frizzell. I, I mean, his yep. playing is exquisite. You yeah, know, sir, right. couldn't be any more beautiful. You know, and there's so many of these guys. They all have a different approach, but ultimately. They are listening to what their other musicians are playing. They're not just out there in the zone. They're listening and reacting to what other guy, the other people, the, the people they're playing with are doing. And that's what makes a great musician. Sure. I was just in contact with uh, Steve Lukather recently, and I told him we'd be talking to you, and he wanted me to tell you hello. And he's also, he's also in the studio right now working on a, a new album. Just mm-hmm. just went in the studio yesterday, I think. Yeah, but right. but mm-hmm. hey, a- after playing for JT, you know uh, Crosby, Nash, Jackson, Brown, Ronstadt, and 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 King as a player, you kind of made the transition to producer. And, and soon after, you you uh, hooked up with Don Henley, where you co-produced and wrote most of uh, Henley's projects. And, mm-hmm. and one that really stands out in my mind is is uh, the end of the Innocence, largely written and produced by you. Right. And that's uh, that's actually a, a Hornsby tune as well, right? Written by Hornsby. Um, and then uh, on Henley's Building the Perfect Beast album, he, you know, he kind of wanted to move away from guitar solos that were such a big part of his first solo album. And, and I, I read a quote. He was saying that guitar solos were becoming as boring as drum solos. <laughs> and, uh, well, yeah, he was, and that, that was like the, mid, the mid-'80s. Yeah. You know? I thought so uh, as well at the time. I was going, geez, how many, how many more guitar solos do people really want to hear? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was saying that in 1985, and then, of course, by ni- 1992, guitar solos were gone. Yep. But on that building, the Perfect Beast album, it was you know you and David Page, Steve Picaro, Ben Mott Tench, Randy Newman. You guys were very uh, instrumental in integrating a lot of synth solos. You know, and one song that comes to mind, obviously, is, is sort of the pinnacle song on that album was was Sunset Grill, sure, right. where you you know you performed that solo at the end with a Roland synth guitar, I think. And that's right. Talk to us a little bit about your influence on this song in particular, and and I guess on the album. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, Sunset Grill. Yeah. yeah, and and the building the perfect beast album. Uh-huh. Well, I can talk about you want to hear about that song. Yeah, oh, sure, definitely. All right. Well, uh, Henley had been talking for a while. You know, we used to 
brainstorm a lot and um, about what we wanted to say, wondering what his what his album's going to be about, the mm-hmm. themes he wanted to address. And uh, one of them was about you know talking about this old guy at the Sunset Grill on Sunset Boulevard and the fact that he made all those burgers by hand and yet he was surrounded everywhere by corporate stuff. Right. And here was a guy that actually you could see him making the product that you were going to consume right in front. You know, he right. was making, he was cooking, and you were eating. It was a very direct thing, and he wanted to get that into a song. All right, so at the same time, I had a piece of music that I'd had from the section days. It was actually in 6-8 at the time, uh-huh. the 6-8 time. Uh, and then I said, well, maybe this should be in 4-4. Four, four. So I played my chord progression, which is the chord changes for Sunset Grill, to him in 4-4 four, four times. He says, yeah, that, that, you know, and that's what he would do. He you know, I'd run stuff past him, and when he'd start going, yeah, that, 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 I'd do more of that. That's the way Henley, Henley writes, you know. So uh, um, that's how we did it, and um, that's how we put that thing together. And then mm-hmm. I made a demo of it, and uh, we needed a bridge. We needed some place for it to go. I was out of, I was running out of ideas, and uh, so what could be easier than to call Ben Montench to come over? Absolutely. And <laughs> okay. say, come on, hit me. Give me me another four bars or something here right <laughs> and he did he came up with a wonderful beautiful bridge of course you know right mm-hmm. and uh we went from there they also the music uh the trombone you know trombone sounding mm-hmm. solos we wanted to all the horns and stuff that was very much influenced by like nelson riddle sure. uh the theme to route 66 a kind of jazz you know hollywood jazz kind of sure stuff that right. we wanted to put in there yeah that's neat who who put a Roland synth axe into your hands for the first time? Oh, I don't know. You know, they came out. I think there was they were in all the rock videos, and everyone said, "Oh, what's that?" <laughs> yeah. We were also Don, Don and I. The one one of the great things about working with Don was, anytime any new piece of gear came out, he'd go get it. He talked <laughs> he talked to his guy Tony as his uh, aide de camp. Right. He'd, Tony, get one. <laughs> Let's try. So this. like it's you know there's this new Lynn drum machine that we should check out. <laughs> Tony, get one. The next day, there it was. I was like, great. I used to love that. I know. Because <laughs> Don would figure, hey, you know, one tune pays for it, you know, whatever yeah. it is. We had one of the first uh, Yamaha DX7s, oh, rest, yeah. uh, you know, ever in, in the country. We had one of the very first ones that, that came over. Yeah. Exactly. So, uh, things like that, you know. Very cool. Yeah. How did you go by enlisting guys like uh, Hornsby Page, Sheryl Crow, and on this project? Well, you know, Don would go to all these people, and, yeah. and uh, he was. You know, he loved all those people, and he would he would go to them. He'd call them up and say, "Listen, you know, how do you feel about coming down?" And uh, he would, you know, he was friends with with Hornsby, who had the music. The music came first with uh, that song, "End of the Innocence." Yeah. And um, obviously, Don married uh, a melody and just a great melody and lyrics. That's a fantastic song. Hornsby yeah. is such a great uh, uh, add to this whole thing. It's just amazing oh what this uh, can add. Um, I, I had the pleasure of, of talking to him in Newport uh, Jazz Festival a few years back, and uh, you know it was it was sort of funny because the out back uh, towards the mixing uh, uh, area, you know, it was pretty empty, and he was just he didn't have anybody to talk to. So I came up to him and started chatting with him, and I actually asked him about this uh, some of the work that he had done in this album, and he was uh, he was more than happy to tell me, "Oh, that was so fun!" You know, this guy it was just right up his alley. And uh, it's just amazing how a keyboardist can just pour that much vibe into a into a, a, a piece, you know. Well, it's not so much the keyboard; it's, it's the guy. You yeah, know? yeah. And it's that's him. He's got a lot of soul. Bruce. Yeah. Face it. All those musicians have played on Don stuff. They're like those are like the most soulful and best guys just you ever could dream of. You know. 
and when they weren't working on the record, they'd come by and hang out. We, I mean, they were, you know, they were our dear friends. Sure, we're in our, our dear friends. You know, yeah. So it was a love fest. And working as a, a producer with you know guys like Dylan, Neil Young, John Bon Jovi, you know Billy Joel, how do you not take the same approach to a, these variety of different you know artists? Well, you just listen to what they're doing. You know, yeah. the idea is to serve the person and mm-hmm. uh, use you know what I know to help them uh, get across something that is essentially them. You know. Yeah, but from your stand, I'm just think- I guess maybe to refine that question from your standpoint, what do you? I mean. What do you do to keep yourself from falling into, you know, maybe a same pattern when you're when you're producing someone? Is it? I mean, has that ever not? Has that been a problem, or have you? Well, I don't think that way too much, you know, because uh-huh. I can't really establish a pattern. My pattern, you know, it, it isn't up to me to have a pattern. It's me to, to mm-hmm. help the artist. When I'm a producer, I'm supposed to just listen to them and bring out what's the best in them using right. whatever I know to do that. Yeah, and I use some tricks, just like all producers. What well, I'm calling, you, know, you can call them trick, call them whatever you want. Yeah. Effects uh, um, sometimes, and some, you know, I, I just uh, do whatever I can do to um, bring out the most in that particular song and out of that artist. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a, a band out of LA that I mean, they had impeccable productions. I've sort of familiar with them, and uh, a band called Dada, and um, you know, probably one of the most underrated bands in LA. Um, yeah, they're really good. But uh, the first album, Puzzle, is sort of a masterpiece in my eyes. It uh, it was just uh, it's every music aficionado's you know collection. You know, um, you started working with Mike Gurley, and tell me a little bit about the relationship with uh, Wadada. Well, you know, uh, they could really seriously play. Yeah, they Those were, guys were yeah. serious. Sure, you know, they're really good. They're really uh, good at what they did. They're two writers. Uh, they they played all the time, so there was no problem getting takes and getting a, a groove happening. Right. And basically, I had, um, there was, uh, I don't know, 25 songs or something, and I had to pare it down to the songs that were going to be on the record. And uh, uh, I don't remember too much about it because nothing terrible happened. The worst thing that happened was uh, one of the machines started shedding tape, and fortunately, the <laughs> engineer saw that uh, the machine was shedding tape. We had to pull, we had to uh, get the guys from uh, BASF, yeah. you know, the tape company, sure. down there. Look at this. Look at this, man. That was fun, <laughs> pushing, pushing those guys around. Was fun. No, those guys were pretty tight. You guys uh, did a great job. They're almost perfectionists. Are you a perfectionist? Well, that's a silly word. That, you, can't, <laughs> you, know, that, you can't use that word in describing music. Yeah. You know? I mean, what is perfection? You know, perfection yeah. to me is Lucille by Little Richard. It's yeah. perfection. Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, there is no... Uh, sure. Perfection is whatever kills you, you know? Yeah. Um, uh, Don always points this out, you know, they say, hey, well, are you a perfectionist? He's not a perfectionist. He's meticulous in getting what he hears in his head. That is not perfection. That's just trying to get something that, that, you, that sounds right to you, that feels right to you. Yeah. Um, you know, there is, music is not perfect. It just isn't. Right. And rock music is definitely not perfect. I think and, a better way. You don't want it to be perfect. I mean, listen to the classic records. Who wants perfection when you've got, you got Elvis Presley and Little Richard and... Jerry Lee Lewis, you know, they're not perfect. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and that's like the greatest stuff there is. So. Yep. You know, a lot of people who listen to our show are, um, are musicians themselves, and a lot of them are budding musicians, and they really enjoy hearing from guys like you. And, you know, if, if, if I was a young musician that had, had the goods uh, to make some great music and I came to you, uh, to, to help me record, you know, my first album. Take take me through your process of getting into my head and music and taking me forward. Yeah. Well, you know, um, it depends entirely on the person and the music uh-huh. and what they're trying to achieve. And uh, then you have to discuss with them 
Do you want do you want it to be very intimate? Do you want it to be uh, have a lot of power and energy? Do you want you know? It, it, it's the artist's vision, you know, right. that counts more than anything. The artist knows live with this stuff. It's not up to me to come up with the vision. It's up to me to help him achieve his, him or her, help them achieve their vision. So uh, as a producer, I would just, you know, try to be as efficient as possible. Go over every song. You know, the pre-production is extremely important, as any producer will tell you. I mean, this sure, is sure. the same stuff as everyone would tell you. You know, pre-production is very important because you, you're not spending tons of money. Right. And the way records are made now yeah. is so completely different than, than the way I was making them. Uh, when I was doing a lot of production, which oh. involved having guys renting of a great studio and going in with a great engineer and, right. <laughs> and recording tracks very efficiently, you know, with terrific musicians having rehearsed, and then you use the time efficiently. Right. And that's been replaced by sitting in somebody's uh, bedroom, typing it, you know, uh, using um, plugins on on Pro Tools or or playing parts one at a time. Right. And also, you got to remember the way people listen to music now. You know, yeah. they listen mainly on computer speakers. True. I'm sure there's a lot of guys that, you know, it sounds to me like a lot of these records are being mixed knowing that the way they're going to be heard is on computer. <laughs> You're absolutely right. Oh, yeah. So that changes the whole aspect of it now. There's no such thing as dynamic range anymore. I mean, you listen to that record, uh, uh, you listen to uh, management's um, Waiting to Pretend, or I think that's mm-hmm. right. It's so crunchy. It's so yeah. completely, you know, it sounds definitely like it was made by guys that, you know, that were, had grown up basically listening to music on, on computer speakers. Right. So. And it probably was. <laughs> that, you know, that's the paradigm change. That's what, you know, that's, that's right. just the way it is in terms of how music is delivered and heard. You know. Yeah. I've got one question about a, um, a collaboration you, you've uh, been with recently with Steve Jordan, Pino Palladino, and uh, Tamiya Okuda for two uh, for two albums and a, and a tour of Japan as a band called The Verbs. Verbs, right? Yeah, tell us a little bit about this band and that collaboration. Sure. Well, you know, for, first of all, how great to work with those. Those are all dear, dear friends. Steve Jordan is one of my absolute—he's a brother. He's a, he yeah. really is like family. He and his wife are—I'm very close with them, and I love them very much, mm-hmm. and have worked. Uh, I've been playing music with him for at least 25 years, yeah. and um, with her since they got together. The Verbs is a ton of fun. The two of them uh, do most of the writing, although I write with them, too. I go in there and write with them. And um, Pino comes in, and, uh, you know, first of all, you're, you're hanging around with Pino and, and Steve. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's it. That's it. That's I mean, it. You know, there is no, that's the end. I mean, that is, those guys are the absolute greatest, you know, that I could ever imagine. I mean, yeah, you know. Uh, um, so we went to Japan, did a tour. It was so much fun. Tamio Okuda, by the way, is fantastic. Yeah, really, and really, really talented and an inventive musician and soulful musician. Very, 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 yeah. very good. I was really uh, uh, after I got to, I wasn't aware of him until I got out to Japan and started playing with him. And I went, wow, take yeah. this cat. <laughs> so. Uh, you see, cats are everywhere. You can't, you know, <laughs> you never know where some guy's going to come out of nowhere and just kill you, you know. That's mm-hmm. one of the great things about being a musician. Just for some of our listeners that aren't familiar with the verbs, tell, tell us about the style of, of music that you guys play. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's pop music. It has a little girl group vibe because Megan Voss, the uh, lead singer, um, uh, I can't remember what band she was in. It was uh, one of the waitresses, I think. Okay, and, uh, okay. So she's from that era. And uh, Steve and I are also kind of 80s kind of people in a way. You know, mm-hmm. we, we grew up uh, in it, listening to a lot of 80s music. So there's, there's that element in there. Uh-huh. And there's uh, some country elements because uh, Megan's a big country fan. There's um, uh, a lot of guitar banging. And um, 
you know, interesting bass parts. If uh, Pino's not playing bass, Steve's also a great bass player, really, really good bass player. Yeah. So the bass is kind of not what you think it's going to be, and it's just real interesting stuff. Yeah. And uh, as far as the I album... I can't bag it, you know. Uh, <laughs> I can't say it's like one kind of thing. Yeah. As far as like you know, the CDs themselves, where can uh, where can our listeners pick that up? Oh well, you can get that stuff anywhere. You know, iTunes or uh, you know, any of the uh, outlets. Great, very cool. Well, it's very very good stuff. I highly recommend that too. Very cool. Well, it's 2010. You're going to be hitting the road with James Taylor and Carol King, and uh, that's going to take you through what June or July, I think. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah uh, right now it's it's through uh, the middle of July. So that's pretty pretty much consumed the first part of your year. What what's the back half of your year look like? What, what, well, what other you things? know that very much depends on James and Carol. If there's more of that, we'll do that. Yeah. If not, I'm going to start. I'm going to come back here to uh, Connecticut and go because this is where my gear is. Sure. And I'm going to start working on um, 
uh, recording all my stuff. I'm doing solo. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of making a solo album, you know. Okay. Solo album. But it's really all my songs, you know, that uh, that I wrote, that uh, Don Henley did and James did and Fabulous uh-huh. Thunderbirds did and Jackson. I'm just doing them my way. These are songs that I wrote that those people covered, you know. Sure, that's cool. And um, yeah. But I'm doing them in a very different style. Obviously, I'm not yeah. as good a singer as those guys, but I have my own take on those songs. Yeah. So, um I'm having a lot of fun with that, you know. That's Pretty excellent. Cool. Keep, uh, us, keep us posted as to how that happens, man. And, yeah, uh, oh yeah. yeah. Yeah, that'd be great. You know, I keep working on it, and, and uh, it keeps getting better, so I keep working on it. <laughs> <laughs> well, Danny, hey, it's, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for your time. And, Absolutely. Uh, and uh, I'm sure our audience really appreciates it, too, learning more about you. Great. Thanks, Katz. Uh, uh, my pleasure. All, All right. right. Take it me. easy. We'll talk to you soon. Good. Bye-bye. Right, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Special thanks to Danny Korchmar for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. Also, very special thanks to the Inside Music Cast correspondents, Scott Gross, Kim Riley, Max Zape, and Brian Pearson. And check out our new website at InsideMusicCast.com, where you can join in on forum conversations about the musicians we cover here on Inside Music Cast, as well as a variety of other music-related topics. You can also catch up on past interviews, read the Inside Opinion blog, and check out bonus content that we'll be posting often. Find us at InsideMusicCast.com. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast. <laughs>